Hello and welcome to Innovation Matters. It's the Sustainable Innovation Podcast brought to you by Lux Research. I'm Anthony Schiavo, Senior Director at Lux, and I'm joined by my two hosts, Mike and Kartik. Mike, how are things in New York? Things are going great. Survived the UN last week, so uh, it's all smooth sailing wow. from here. Mm-hmm. And Kartik, how's Amsterdam? Yeah, Amsterdam is good. Back to its cloudy old self, so... Uh... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The good, forward the to the winter. Of good weather. <laughs> the two <laughs> yeah, months of good weather that Amsterdam gets is over, and yeah. uh, it's back to suffering, which is good. It builds character, I think. Um, so yeah, we, we had an interesting week. Uh, a lot of interesting news to come over. We've got the first story is one that provoked a lot of like debate in the Lux Slack channel. Um, Lego walked sort of announced that it was walking back this commitment to use recycled plastic and particularly they had developed uh this approach to take recycled pet and convert that into a usable product for their bricks because their bricks are primarily made of abs plastic which is a higher performance plastic they said that um you know hey this isn't gonna work we're not gonna do this and I think there was a pretty sharp reaction in the news. I mean, they ended up like kind of posting. I saw some like (laughs) apology (laughs) posts, definitely some like, you know, notes app style, like apology (laughs) posts from them where they were kind of like, well, look guys, like we're still really committed to sustainability. It's just like that this one thing didn't work. Um, And I think partly the part of the reason for the the backlash or, or maybe the, some of the, commentary that surrounded this was that i think their initial explanation didn't make a lot of sense um you know they they said look this pet thing will um ultimately result in in higher carbon emissions overall if we scale it up and that's why we're not going to do it if you take that on face value it makes sense i mean we've been talking about you know for example plastic pyrolysis technologies that have a much higher carbon footprint and we've been saying oh this is going to be a problem people care about climate change climate change is probably a bigger issue than plastic waste so um that's you know that's going to be a big a big sort of bottleneck but the pet um mechanical recycling approach that they were doing i mean mechanical recycling baseline has a 50 percent reduced carbon emissions footprint from you know a, a primary material especially a primary material like ABS. So they said, oh, we have to do this post-processing to to make it work. And that maybe, I guess maybe that's really energy intensive, but it doesn't really, I don't know. It, it, it It's very strange. Um, well, and Mike, go go ahead. You have a lot of feelings on this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a strange announcement. Um, I am specifically what they said. So there's, you know, for one to get the PET to perform to the level of ABS, they had to do a lot of, um, modifications to it. They didn't say what, but a certain amount of additives, maybe compounding it with some other, other types of resins that could definitely raise the carbon footprint, but, but not that much. Um, they pointed to the need to, to do a lot of retooling. Um, which also makes sense, right? You'd need to, to change out a lot of the, the different types of machines. You might need to configure the lines to do some of the, you know, the extra compounding and processing. And that's certainly expensive. And in the short term, right, if you need to buy like a bunch of big new machines, that that could raise carbon emissions. And 
but but really only in the short term, right? If you think about the impact yeah, of the the machinery, the installation, production and installation of the the machinery is you know over time not a really big part of the overall carbon emissions for for most products. So that didn't really totally add up either. But it could be you know if they just said, well, we're looking at our carbon emissions like in the year we do the plant changeover and like the three years or whatever. If you look at it over a short enough time period, then yeah. the effect of changing the equipment could get you know larger. Um, Presumably, you're gonna do that as the equipment ages out anyway right like you're not going to just throw out all your old equipment and i mean partially just because of the supply supply issues you're not going to get that much pet plastic like it, it just that that whole part of it yeah, really struck me as very strange yeah and and so just wonder if that's like it it's just an excuse because it, it was really yeah. a cost issue or perhaps it was really a performance issue they couldn't actually get the pet the rpet to yeah. I, th- I think perform. that's most likely that they couldn't get the PET to perform or they just sort of looked at it and they realized like, why are we doing this with PET? That's the thing that never made sense to me in the baseline. It's like, we're going to use PET bottles as our feedstock. It's like PET bottles are already a, I, I get that they're like an available feedstock. It's out there. I'm sure that but, was the reason, but yeah. Yeah. But that's a stupid reason. I'm sorry. Like <laughs> you have, that's like one of the only good feedstocks that you can use to make food grade PET with and food grade PET is in you know from such demand from a regulatory standpoint with the new laws being passed in Europe and in PET is not ABS like it, it just it never made sense to me to start with a uh, a product that I mean I know why like there's not that much ABS out there in the market but right. like I get it but it's like just don't just don't recycle like this is just not <laughs> this yeah, is just well, not the way to tackle the problem like putting plastic bottles into your bricks is is just a pr stunt like sorry <laughs> the whole the whole solution at a baseline was never never made sense to me well yeah and it's also just from a sustainability standpoint right that if because you can recycle pet pretty effectively it's much better to take that that r pet and put it into another bottle which will then be recycled mm-hmm. again as opposed to putting it into a lego brick or doing a bunch gonna... of processing yeah well and then what happens you know that lego brick's probably going to end up in the you know garbage albeit maybe you know 20 years from now when you're you know your mom throws out your old lego sets after you've moved out of the house or whatever but i still have my it's not, lego it's sets. not very circular <laughs> all right kurt as a lego enthusiast on the podcast what, what do you think about this one I don't have much to add, to be honest, in terms of this. The only association I have with Lego is two incredible skylines I have <laughs> on my private desk, one of uh, the Dubai and the other one of Paris. <laughs> uh, I didn't even know about, I didn't even think about the materials that were actually used in them, whether they're sustainable or not, whether they can be recycled or not, stuff like that. Maybe I'll have to rethink if I buy another yeah, Lego skyline you, again. But uh, That is the other weird thing about this, not to like, you know, totally like... You know, dump on Lego, but Lego is a really durable product. Like, a lot of people do keep their Legos where they get handed down, and like, Lego has made a lot of like positive PR, like, oh, like all these Lego bricks that we made like 30 years ago, they still work, they don't fall apart, you know, they don't mm-hmm. break that much. Like, waste is just not that big of an issue for the Lego product overall. And so, them being like, yeah, we're going to use a bunch of plastic bottles, which is like not our problem, 
we're going to do that. And then we're going to, you know, put that in our, in our, in our product, which doesn't have a waste issue. It just, it just never made sense. So I, I think ultimately like, it's probably just like, they look at the finances and they said, you know, why are we doing this thing? <laughs> yeah, I don't stupid. think, I don't think customers really care about where their brick comes from as long as they have the brick, right? They're not going to yeah. use it for 10 days and then throw it like you said. So yeah, they need yeah. to get rid of those little plastic baggies that the, the, the parts come in. That's sustainable. But, but those parts are really small. You know, you could easily lose them. Maybe some other sustainable packaging yeah, well, solution. But yeah, uh, that's what they need to be focused. I'm sure there's people like working on that. But like, yeah. come on. Well, that's the thing they said. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be be too much of a of a hater here either. I mean, sustainability efforts are. I mean, this maybe wasn't the best conceived one in in the first place. But sustainability efforts are gonna they're gonna fail sometimes. That's just. The nature of any kind of innovation project, um, and they said in, the, in their in this sort of like uh, apology note or <laughs> that that they they posted the day after I have a notes app thing, um, they said they're going to triple sustainability spending um, to one point four billion over over four years, which is which is a lot of a lot of money. I'm not sure what all of that goes to. Maybe some of that's like solar PPAs or whatever for you know sourcing green electricity or something like that but nonetheless you know it's it's not like they're uh it's not like they're not uh making a sincere effort i think to be to be to try to be more sustainable you're right we should not announced, be haters they just announced they're hiring a new chief sustainability officer also it came out the same day i was looking saw that in the newsroom so maybe she can whip them into shape while we're on the subject of being haters, we can be haters to a different company. And that is <laughs> not actually GE, but GE subcontracted. There's a sort of brewing story where GE subcontracted with a company to recycle its wind turbine blades. If you don't know, wind turbine blades are really, really big and they're really, really uh, bulky, very challenging to recycle because of their shape. But also, they're typically made of pretty complex composite glass fiber, uh, epoxy reinforced material. There's no real commercial process today that enables those to be recycled. Like some people have made some claims. Um, companies like Arkema, for example, are moving forward with new resins to put into the blades. But we're just now at the the point of putting so-called recyclable content or recyclable resins into the blades. So those blades are not going to come off the market, you know for 15 years at least. So we're talking about blades that were made with very unrecyclable materials. And GE subcontracted this company. They said, hey, like, recycle these blades for us. The company was like, yeah, no problem. And then apparently just like dumped them in, in this small town in the Midwest. And uh, it's been this brewing story. And now GE is suing this company. So Karthik, I'm curious, you're the one who really brought this uh, story to us. And what what caught your eye here? What What stands out to you? Um, I think, uh, so maybe to give some context to our listeners as well as to what actually happened. So, uh, global fiberglass solutions, that's the company GE suing, uh, they, uh, so GE operates, uh, wind farms, onshore wind farms in Iowa and Texas. They have about 5,000 wind farms, uh, in which you, that are, uh, you know, about to reach their end of life. So they wanted to take these blades and, and, you know, they sell it to GFS and GFS would then recycle them for, you know, uh, getting pellets or maybe fine powder that can be used as filler 
or for different applications. It turns out they were just stockpiling them in a warehouse in different parts of the country, not just in just some random town in the Midwest. It was just everywhere. Uh, and and there's, I think, about $19 million in damages or something like that is what GE is suing them for. Um, what really caught my eye was, because we usually follow recycling innovations, um, this is one of the issues that we have also seen in uh, apparel and, and shoe recycling, where if I'm not wrong, mm-hmm. uh, Adidas and Nike yeah. or one of them had an issue with you know shoes being stockpiled that was supposed to be recycled. So yeah. that happening I'm with not wind sure turbines about was that there was a Dow Dow Singapore had an issue where they they subcontracted out to a a, a local waste management company to uh, recycle the shoes and they ended up just selling the shoes on or dumping them in, in another country. Um, so that's definitely yes. Happened. Yeah, so that's that's what one of the the things that actually caught my eye was uh, they didn't maybe do a proper vetting process to see how they recycle, who the end customers are, do they even have maybe supply or purchase agreements in place for selling recycled material? It's it's quite a uh, a bad sign that DG didn't a GE didn't do its uh, due diligence on this, or maybe GFS was so good that you know they uh, ended yeah. up fooling <laughs> GE so well. Allegedly, I don't know what happened? <laughs> allegedly. allegedly, I just yeah. want to say allegedly so that we don't get sued here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're monitoring yeah, the innovation matters we'll podcast very closely. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I know. Really. Ten, 10 episodes in, and we get shut down by a by a lawsuit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's ultimately what it comes down to is it's it's really difficult to outsource this type of sustainability work, and you're just going to take a risk on. A subcontractor that's that's probably going to come back and bite you you know if not immediately then at some point you're gonna get a story like this and you're either gonna have to sue and that's expensive or you're gonna have to do the lego notes app apology thing and and that's like a pain so it's <laughs> it just it's just i think uh you know ultimately companies are gonna have to bring all this in-house if they really want the especially the hard stuff the complex stuff to be recycled shoes apparel uh wind turbines like you said yeah i mean bring it in house or or just be a lot more actively involved in the in in the collaboration right you can't just uh, kind of cut somebody a check and and ship the turbine blades off to them and, and say you know we're sort of all good here i mean you if if it's an established process or something like that if you're doing that with pet bottles then you know in a pretty established recycling process industry that's one thing but yeah for something like wind turbine blades You'll have to be a lot more involved. But I do right. think it's, you know, I've it, cracked it is going to be. <laughs> right. I've cracked Play the code. Lego, right? They need to source the the recycled carbon or, you know, glass fiber composite material from GE. And because that's already a performance material, I bet you could, I bet you could hit your performance targets with that, uh, that composite material for sure. So this is clearly uh, two great tastes that taste great together here. <laughs> in terms of <laughs> these two sustainability issues <laughs> get uh get it. we're gonna get our top people I'm on it l- looking forward to my fiberglass legos that will be great yeah that's great absolutely looking forward to it. getting a bunch of post-industrial like <laughs> chemical <laughs> residue <laughs> catalyst residue in my my five-year-old's toy he's like putting it in his mouth that's great Okay, we're back, and we are delighted to be joined by Steve Weiss. Steve is the co-founder of Gray Heron, uh, which is a management and strategic uh, consulting firm. But he's really, uh, I would say he's a coach. 
he has been involved in almost every sort of important uh, industrial biotech startup in the U.S. over the last two decades. And I know that at Lux, whenever we talk about industrial biotech and we have a particularly challenging question, the conversation always comes back to or maybe just ends with someone saying, OK, we need to we need to talk to Steve. We need to get Steve on the line. So he, he's really the I don't know. Uh, a, a sage, uh, and he's here to share some of his w- wisdom with us today. So we're super excited to have him on. Steve, how are you doing? Uh, doing really well, especially after that introduction. I, I, know. I feel I need to reach out here more often to to get energized like that. I'm trying. I'm trying to pitch other uh, <laughs> other guests to come on. So we gotta we gotta do a good job of making it sound like a good time. But um, Steve, you know, I guess I'm curious. If just to start, if you could give a little on your background, um, tell our audience a little bit about you, as well as talk a little bit about industrial biotech and what it is, because it's kind of this nebulous uh, concept, right? It's everything from beer to pharmaceuticals, depending on how far you define it. So I'm curious for your perspective on that, that sort of broad question of just what is this thing called industrial biotech? Oh, sure. Um if I understood the first part of your question, though, uh, a little bit in terms of me and where I'm coming from. So um, uh, to the surprise of many, I, I actually started off very deep technical. Um, I got my first soldering iron from my grandfather at the age of five. He was a watchmaker uh, and a big influence on me just in terms of, of building things. It, it was fun. It was interesting. Um, and I ended up going to MIT bachelor's and master's in computer science, four years of research work uh, at IBM and HP's computer research labs. Could have gone that path, found it really interesting. Uh, But I wanted to do something a little more hands-on. And so I moved into product development. Uh, I was fortunate to be involved in uh, really kind of a breakthrough uh, product in the early 80s, HP's touchscreen PC, and was part of a team developing a sexy use of touch. For that system. And I have a working HP 150, 40 years old uh, in the next room. Lo- love it. Um, uh, I can point people to a YouTube video of uh, HP's first ever TV commercials. But doing something kind of fun like that got me exposure to customers and major accounts and sales and marketing. And I said, wow, this is kind of cool. So I moved into marketing, biz dev, and general management initially at HP, then a succession of startups and clean companies that I went uh, on up through and beyond IPO. Um, and I enjoyed doing all those things and getting the operating experience and having P&Ls. Uh, but it's now 30 years ago, myself and someone I met at HP, my uh, co-founder of Grey Heron, Chris Kocher, we formed our boutique consultancy. We've worked with well over 100 companies over the years. And we really focus on issues of business strategy, business model, fundraising, partnerships, differentiation and messaging. And so the real thread I would pull out of that is despite my love or maybe because of my love of technology, I've probably worked with our clients over the years to bend over backwards to try to make it all explainable and relevant. Uh, and, and, you know, therein lies the rub. There are a lot of great, passionate people, and this is maybe a bridge into your questions about the biotechnology and renewables field. There are a lot of really passionate entrepreneurs. They're in love with their technology, but you have to connect the dots. 
And that's the thing that powers being able to sign up those charter customers and get them excited about your technologies and to supply the money to fund real commercial deployments or to be able to go out and fundraise, uh, not just against 10 other competitors in your subsector, but you're really competing against a broader audience. I mean, there's a wealth of opportunities out there. Uh, you're competing for talent and you know who you'll be able to hire. You're competing for the attention of analysts and press. And so that whole mission of, you know, how do you have a story that hangs together, that makes sense, that's executable, that's implementable, um, and, and that people see as relevant and impactful? I mean, that, that's the magic. And, and that's what turns me on. That's really fantastic. And that's one of the reasons we invited you here today was to kind of talk about that process of innovation, especially at the early stages. So I guess I'm curious, we were talking before the recording started, how do you see companies, you know, when you're at that very early stages, maybe it's just a technology and a founder um, or a small group. What tells you that it's something worth pursuing or something, um, you know, how do you differentiate at such an early stage with those technologies and companies? Uh, th thanks for that, Anthony. Um, you know, much like an investor would look at things, there, there's a pattern of de-risking different parts of a proposition. There's de-risking the technology. There's de-risking market interest or market acceptability, market fit. There's de-risking the particular way that you're going to monetize uh, or turn an idea or some invention, some technology into actual products or services, right? There's de-risking building out of the organization. And so we can look at the, the question you just shared and say, depending how early something is, you have different relative expectations of how much should already be happening in terms of de-risking something. One of the things, again, despite or maybe because of my love of all kinds of technologies, I'm especially interested in market fit, okay? Is there going to, is there a compelling use case at least to get something off the ground, right? If you can find those kind of beachheads where whatever it is you think you are working on as some innovator, uh, if you can identify something where your innovation will have compelling, distinct value, then you have a chance. If, you, if you're having trouble doing that, then you're, you're, you're pushing a big rock uphill. Um, maybe you'll get lucky. Maybe someone else will discover what that value proposition and, and you know, let you in on it. And, and that does happen. You know, sometimes you're, you, you kind of throw things out there and people come up with all kinds of interesting applications uh, that you hadn't thought of. But I think there's a lot of value if you have people on the team that uh, already know what problem they're going to start off solving. Yeah, I think it's a, it, one of the things that, that we see a lot, you know, as you know, at Loxy work a lot with people who are on the corporate side, right? The big multinationals who are interested in, you know, potentially partnering with or eventually acquiring or what have you with, uh, with some of these startup companies. 
and I think one of the models people sort of have is the startup companies can bring new technology, but oftentimes, at least in, you know, when you have things like industrial biotechnology, that's often they're not always going into sort of existing or established markets. A lot of times it is the big companies that have that, that sort of insight into like, well, what it is, what is it that's out there in the market? What are we hearing from our customers that we can't deliver on right now? But maybe if, you know, with this, this startup technology, we, um, we could. Um, so what do you see as the kind of the role for those kind of the partnerships with, with the larger companies, you know, when's appropriate to do that in the life cycle of some of these, you know, these emerging innovators and, and what's the best role that those, that those larger established companies can play? Well, I mean, lar- large companies, as, as you described, Mike, are absolutely invaluable for seeing any kind of progress in, in this field. Um, the range of knowledge, experience, connections, uh, uh, trade secrets, and any number of things that they bring to the party is, is so invaluable. The, um, yeah, I'm not the first to say this, but it's really the case that the devil is in the details, right? So um, I personally, uh, you know, hopefully I'm not oppositional, but I, I like to take a devil's advocate point of view a lot of the time, or very skeptical point of view, and um, I'll rail against the dozens of companies that have plus or minus the same slideware, right? It's like, oh, look, and we take a wide range of feedstocks, and we have a leading edge, super efficient conversion technology, and it goes into stuff that can be converted into a wide range of multi-billion dollar markets. Um, yeah. The market, the market well, potential, you know, if, is incredible, uh, right? We, we've seen those, yes. <laughs> so uh, having seen a lot of slide decks in, in my time, I again, I, I can appreciate trying to craft that big story. And, and again, I'm getting to where the, the partners fit in, but the subtleties of understanding from a supply chain partner in the auto industry, let's say, that makes it really clear that, yeah, you know something, you're making this bio-based chemical, but if it's, um, but if when this is polymerized, if it has the slightest hint of color, then guess what? All of the paint that's already been pre-qualified to go on and create the bumper colors for two years from now, we have to redo that and that's not gonna happen. And these things can happen with, it's not just a, is something 99.8 or 9% you know, the same as uh, a predecessor. It's also how those impurities might differ from fossil sources when you're moving to biogenic sources. And so, and, and here I, I jump to an example in, um, in the auto parts supply chain. You know, you could do this in, um, in apparel. You could do this in cosmetics. In each of these cases, there's some subtlety, whether it's, hey, that one part per million of something could result in odor that's different or different sensory sensation in the cosmetics that go on skin, right? Or color, as we talked about, or um, I, if it polymerizes differently, then I might only be able to pull a fiber for a hundred meters instead of 10 kilometers on my spinning machines. 
devil is in the details, right? How do you do the risk management then, given that this is such a, like you said, it's a, it's a really details oriented and it's not like, oh, is there a market for fibers? Yeah. Okay. We figured it out. We've de-risked that part. It, it's it really is in these details. So how do you de-risk this? You know, so, at the yeah, earlier stage. No, thanks for that. The what I have found to um, be helpful in this journey is trying to onboard and form those kind of in, very informative partnerships very early on in a commercialization journey. Okay. Because again, that, that can provide those very direct insights that can shorten a commercialization timeline by a couple years. And those couple years are the most expensive years because a technology company will have already grown from 35 people to 150 people. They're maybe running things at much more expensive contract manufacturing operations. So that's being more expensive. So the lessons you're learning then are valuable, but five or 10 times more expensive. So if you're able to form some of these partnerships with um, market leaders uh, and and folks that are willing to move at your pace uh, and where you can do an impedance match on expectations, mutual expectations, and, and bring them early in cycle, that, that's what can be in, invaluable. Um, uh, there's a, a factor that gets in the way of that sometimes. Uh, what I've seen on occasion is startups, growth stage companies, they're so anxious to sign the big name and want to promote that so heavily and ideally bring on some non-dilutive capital uh, along with that. And, you know, that's just challenging because then, of course, if you have an ask like that, then the large partner is going to have higher expectations. And you may not yet be in a position to really fulfill those expectations. And, and that's where tensions can come up and, and it emphasizes uh, the, the importance of aligning expectations at the outset. It's interesting because in our data, we found that uh, partnerships really are the, one of the most predictive factors when we look at startups, especially early stage startups trying to predict their success. But I hadn't put it in quite so concrete a financial sense of like, yeah, you, you can learn these hard lessons at a, a burn rate of you know $500,000 a year, or you could learn them at a burn rate of $10 million a year. And uh, one is going to be a lot more challenging. Oh yeah, I mean, I've had clients say that to me too. It's like, oh, if we had if we had seen this company two or three years ago, it could have been a really valuable partnership. But they've just gone off so far in you know sort of the wrong direction for us that that it we don't we don't really see it now. So uh, that that can definitely be be a factor that way too. Right, right, right. The the other positive thing that that uh, you get to access. Uh, I talked about the partners' connections. I mean, it takes an ecosystem, a a pretty substantial one, to deliver an an end-market-relevant product, at at least for many of the things that we're talking about today, where very often all these bio-based chemicals or renewable fuels, they're, they're ingredients, right? They're ingredients in something else. And so they have to fit in with 
operating practices and you know installed uh, hardware and equipment. And there are all kinds of people that already have their uh, that are touching that elephant already. And you need to be mindful of that, respectful of it, and the right early partners can help guide you to the people that can uh, have successful uh, uh, stages of product introduction. Yes, Steve. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, sticking with the partnership narrative, um, as Anthony mentioned, you know, we always look at early stage startups. We keep trying to gauge their partnerships and their relationships. Um, so, you know, when we look at some of the classifications, we say, okay, they have a technical partner, they have a project development partner, they have a product partner. What's the right mix? Should a company go full technical uh, or, or, or do you think they should have more on the project and product side? How do you gauge that if you're a startup? Yeah, I mean, it's a big, it's a big question, right? And, and I think, so I'm going to duck it slightly in, in terms of, I, I'm not sure there's a one size fits all uh, answer here. Um, from cases I've seen, uh, I, I like to look at what really are going to be the benefits of any of the parties, right? So if, let's say I'm a bio, uh, a company, deep, deep, deep in biotech, I'm innovating all kinds of things, and I'm looking at some major consumer products company. They'll probably have some number of biotech experts, but is are those the people I, I really need, you know, the additive value that I'm looking for from them? I'll welcome any um, input, sanity checks, things like that along the way, because they're, they'll have a wealth of experience and they're seeing a bunch of things. But what they'll really know is their ecosystem, customer um, acceptability, uh, pricing, any number of issues tied to that. And, and that's where I'd love to work together uh, with them and extract uh, that, that uh, value add. Um, in, in the using the labels you offered, some of that may tie more closely to product fit uh, if I recall your your comments, yeah, it's Steve. On on that point, how do you communicate to these more sort of product or market oriented leaders, maybe senior management, about some new technology? You know, this is often something we we find, especially with sustainability, where we are coaching our clients or helping our clients at Lux talk to their senior management, their CEO about why they should care, right? About this new tech, this new sustainability value, whatever it is, right? Especially in the biotech biobase space. Is that a challenge? And and I guess I'm really curious in particular for your perspective. I mean, you've been doing this since basically my whole life, right? <laughs> Not quite, but pretty close to. Um, so how has that changed? You know, it, has it gotten easier to communicate to top management about either technology generally or sustainability more specifically since 93? The big strategics are investing more and more in terms of technology understanding, scouting teams, all kinds of things like that. I actually put more of the onus back on the technology companies that are trying to get their mm -hmm. foot in the door and are trying to sell and get partners and, and collaborations. Um, and the, the first thing I steer towards is 
it's not about you. It's about them. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is a new habit for many companies and many entrepreneurs because you're so immersed in the work you're doing every day to advance this technology, this product, whatever it might be, you want to talk about it. And it's like, it's not about you. It's about them. And you have to talk in their language, right? And so yeah. one of the easy, in, in a way, one of the easiest things I do to kind of shake things up, uh, you know, I might look at, um, and it, it sounds very tactical, but, but it's reflective of a shift in mindset. I might look at, okay, what's your standard customer presentation? And I look even at the cover slide and it's so-and-so companies, such and such platform for blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, and rip that up, you know, li <laughs> uh, literally and figuratively. And how about it's uh, helping such and such company achieve its 2030 greenhouse gas uh, reduction target. Um, subhead, subtitle, uh, our, our technology can hit 40% of your objective by 2028 and 80% of it by 2030, right? Okay, now you have their attention. You're talking in terms that are relevant to them, right? And what that requires is a little bit of research, right? Often off of their public materials, a lot of asking basic questions about what they're trying to achieve, right? And then framing whatever it is, whatever your proposition is in terms that are relevant to them. And, and it's the same thing when you're going out to, uh, for investment, especially for later stage investments, or when you look to go public and then have ongoing you know, quarterly earnings calls, you're trying to understand what's someone trying to achieve? What are the metrics they're looking at? What should I be reporting out on, you know, to give people insight, confidence, transparency, all, all those great things. So no, no rocket science here, but it, it does reflect a, a shift in mindset for many. So I think that's a, a pretty good segue because you've just spent the last couple of minutes describing, I think, what a lot of companies broadly failed to do uh, in the year 2020, 2021. We saw this huge SPAC boom, right, in this industrial biotech space. Funding, I think, hit about maybe like $4 billion total. And a lot of that, I think over half of that in 2021 came from, you know, the sort of SPAC sources, right? and we saw pretty clearly that this was a bubble. A lot of companies, you know, ultimately had to downsize or went out of business. They had these run rate issues that you were talking about. They were learning these really hard. I mean, Zymergen obviously comes to mind in terms of learning some pretty hard lessons about product market fit at a time when you're burning $100 million a year, right? And so I guess, first of all, I'm just curious for your whole perspective on that phenomenon. Why? Did it happen? Was it just financial forces coming to this market? And then I'm also curious for sort of where, where do you think we go here? Where do we go next? And, and just this whole, what, what does it mean, right? For, for the whole industrial biotech space? Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> a, a very rich topic to, uh, to explore here. So 
the way I think about SPACs is one particular flavor, if you will, of financial engineering, right? It's a tool. In and of itself, uh, I would not apply a value judgment to it, right? It's like most tools, it can be used well, productively, uh, with positive outcomes all around, or it can, there can be sort of overkill uh, and a tool gets overused or it's not the appropriate tool. Um, yeah, for a bunch of reasons, they, it became a popular vehicle, notably for companies trying to raise a lot of money and this oversimplifying, this seemed like an easy way to access it. It seemed like it would be faster to access it. And it had an ostensible advantage of, oh, wait, I get to disclose more about what my, what kind of earnings I think I'll get several years from now. And maybe I'll be able to get a higher valuation as a result, put more money in the piggy bank, uh, you know, make my employees happy, all that kind of stuff. Right, which for you know for context is not something that you're allowed to do in the prospectus for a conventional IPO, right? Yeah, but you exactly, could and, and exactly. Yeah. And and then there are some trade offs to that, you know, including the SPAC process itself. Yeah, you're still you're still doing a whole lot of work to pull together all the disclosures, all the information that's needed, all the systems internally, uh, and so on. And so you know the question comes up of how many companies hit the public markets before they were really ready to be you know, a public, mature, resp- you know, well-run for the future kind of company. Um, certainly, investor returns on SPACs during the last few years have been terrible. Uh, you know, I, unfortunately, I can't quote exact numbers top of head, uh, but many of the biotechnology kinds of things have you know, been challenging. Zymergen, which you've mentioned, I'm, I'm quite familiar with and have explored uh, on stage at, at conferences uh, and such. Uh, yeah, but there, there's kind of responsibility all around. Um, you've, I'm a big fan of what I like to describe as back of envelope calculations. You know, does something add up? And I, I remember, and nothing confidential here, just I remember the publicly available materials on Zymergen. You could, I would spend time and say, does this add up? Okay, so let's say all their technology worked fantastically. You know, how many markets are, are out there that are bigger than X? And you know, even if they produce the thin film that becomes on top of a billion smartphones every year. Okay, how big a business is that for them? Well, I can triangulate on that by saying, how much do smartphones cost? How much does the screen cost right now? You know, how much more valuable if it would be flexible? And okay, how many grams of material are shipping and how much of that can Zymergen access? And then I go, oh, so even if they're awesome at this, here's how much money they make. And now how many of those are there? And I would scratch my head and say, you know, I don't see it. You know, I, it, it just doesn't add up to the kind of story. Now, am I being short-sighted? You know, maybe. But people for Zymergen and some others were applying very lofty multiples against hypothetical earnings that were several years out. 
So, you know, that's, that's tough. And then if you stub your toe along the way, the markets are going to punish you. So let me ask then uh, along these lines, uh, one of the challenges with industrial biotech research is that it is expensive, right? And it is, you know, risky. And as much as you want to de-risk it, it is challenging to de-risk, especially at scale. Um, and we've seen companies get to scale and then fail because, you know, they didn't actually handling, you know, 500,000 tons of inputs a, a year turned out to be super difficult or whatever, right? So I'm curious as to what the right structure is because Zymergen was clearly doing a lot of R&D that was very valuable. Um, I think in a sort of abstract way, um, you know, in a sort of basic, maybe basic research type of way. But that that type of R&D they were doing didn't really have a great commercial vehicle, um, or at least the commercial vehicle they chose was clearly not the correct one. So what is the right commercial vehicle? Um, or how would you structure this type of R&D? Um, and how would you structure a company that maybe wants to operate at larger scales or wants to use more resources, but doesn't want to maybe expose itself to public markets or, or how, how would you, how would you, what's the right structure, right? If it's a big question, of course, but I'm just yeah. curious as to what you think. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, absolutely. A big question. Uh, the answer again is going to be an, it depends, uh, but let me, let me go a little deeper. Uh, so for example, one of the ways of looking at this would be business model optionality. Right. And so your go-to-market strategy, your productization strategy, your commercialization strategy may be intimately tied to size of market you're addressing. And I don't mean total size in terms of dollars. Uh, I mean, in terms of volume of product ship number of customers you serve, you know, measures like that and what the ASP would be, you know, what, what's the, you know, are you talking some kind of high value product or service, a lower value product or service? And so those then become input, one of the inputs to your funding strategy. I'll give you an example. Um, Let's say you're interested in tackling some high volume, more commodity like markets, which typically require large scale capital investments, significant steel in the ground, knowledge of those customers and their applications. So in essence, what you just mapped out is something that takes some serious table stakes if you think you're going to be a, a new player in that field. Okay, so when you have a situation like that, sure, if you have a compelling enough case, maybe you could successfully go out and raise 500 million, a billion, whatever it might be to enter the market that way. Or you might say, hey, another approach is I'll productize my technology and services in a way I can license them to others that are in a better position to do that, right? And you can borrow lessons from all kinds of other industries. Uh, you know, 
Microsoft in its earliest days, you know, licensing operating systems made an awful lot of money. Did that also help fuel them being able to more directly go to customers later on with applications? Absolutely. Right now. So, so when tackling one type of market, one type of commercialization strategy married to one type of fundraising strategy may make sense. If I'm going after um, pharmaceutical ingredients, you know, that are small volume, high value, then yeah, are my capital expenses really going to be that, that big? Probably not in, in a relative sense. And so I may have different options for, for going ahead and going to market. Is there a mismatch in terms of these business models and like the risk versus reward? I, I sort of, I, I'm thinking about in particular the, the large scale capital infrastructure and, you know, the, the idea of licensing the operating system is, is really sort of attractive. And I think you see that in some of the ways that some of these biotech companies or industrial biotech companies have positioned themselves over the years. But I, I guess, you know, structurally, um, are the incentives in place for then the other folks or some other company to take on that risk and scale that technology up or, you know, manage that maybe they already have that scale. So I, I guess it's, is the ecosystem in place for that type of uh, business model to make sense? And, and does the risk reward line up? Because I think, you know, th that's one of the challenges I think we see in the space is that it's sometimes hard to, to match the risk of technology development and the risk of scale up with the, the reward in terms of like the margins and the value proposition. Yeah, I, I think what helps here is uh, a more finely tuned analysis of you know, the set of leaders, the set of market participants in any given market. Uh, what I mean by that, uh, let, let's say you have a market for one particular widely used chemical. And, you know, here's number one, number two, number three, and so on in market share. Now, it could well be that any technology company looking to partner up is super excited about going with number one and or number two in, in the field. But when you talk about motivations and, you know, Anthony, as you described, it's sort of the ecosystem and our interests aligned, they may or may not be. You know, the big names may or may not be the people that will move most readily to adopt and deploy your technology. And so I, I'm a big believer in past performance being the best predictor of future corporate behavior. So one of the things I like to ask potential large partners uh, on behalf of technology companies I'm working with, I ask them to walk me through case studies of when they have done similar initiatives. I don't care if it's in exactly my field. Uh, in one case, they and, and you see the companies that light up when asked something like that because they want to talk about it. You know, they, you know there was one conversation I had where they described, oh, yes, um, here was something we spun up X years ago in the recycling field 
where we put down this large bag of money, here's how we helped that company from the start. Here's how we became their offtake partner or, you know, whatever the relevant commercial relationship was. And you say, okay, you know, check. Here's someone that has built its corporate DNA with a bias to action. And that's going to be the real test from the technology company's perspective of, you know, who's really ready to go as opposed to, uh, um, being an interested observer over an extended period of time, but not necessarily moving to to deploy. Yeah, that's something that comes up so much in talking, you know, with the folks on the corporate side, right, is is just for them to to understand, you know, to be a good partner, you don't need to, you know, just have a lot of money or just have a large market sitting on the other side of you. But especially for these small companies, you need to be able to move quickly and to not just, you know, kind of sit there and, and, you know, sit on an opportunity or mull over an opportunity for 12, 18 months or something like that, because it's, that's, you know, by the time you've done that, the, the startup companies either moved on or gone out of business, but by, by that point. Yeah. So that, yeah, that I, I, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right, Mike. Um, and in fact, you'll, you'll find some number of earlier stage investors who make it a point when they're trying to line up strategics as limited partners in their investment funds, um, they're especially interested in finding those that really do want to work with and evaluate and onboard early stage technology and try stuff out and give feedback because that then becomes genuine value add beyond money and experience that that investor can bring to the party uh, and will save the startup a whole lot of time. Yeah, or just even just in partnerships, right? The willingness to actually share feedback. Uh, you know, I've talked to, to startups also where they've said, well, we sent a sample of our material to this company and they just said, no, it doesn't work. They didn't give us any feedback on why. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't, that doesn't take us anywhere. That doesn't help us. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Well, look, I think that's a, a great place to wrap it up. Steve, I want to thank you again for coming on and talking to us. And I'll give you the last word uh, <laughs> to our audience, you know, some of whom may be in those corporations we're talking about. Um, just anything you'd like to share with them or the, uh, the, the the direction the space is going, you know? Oh, sure. Um, uh, th- thanks for that, Anthony. Uh, I just think there there's so much potential you know, within this field biotechnology and renewables. I'm, I'm especially excited about and interested in, passionate about the potential impact on sustainability and helping our planet and, and what biotechnology can do there and do it and do it big scale. Um, I, you know, technology companies, you know, I love working with them. I also at times get to work with technology users, if you will, uh, and help with their strategy. Uh, onboarding capabilities to evaluate and maximize the value of your partnerships, I think can be a real differentiator for a lot of technology users in terms of positioning you for greater success with your either business customers or consumers as your customers uh, and and anticipating where, where the puck is going. 
Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com slash blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.